This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. So today is World AIDS Day and on the line we have Natalie Brown. She is the Health Promotion and Communications Coordinator for Positive Women Victoria. Welcome, Natalie. Hi. Hi, Natalie. Thanks so much for joining us. No worries at all. What are the underlying issues behind the World AIDS Day theme this year, Right to Health? Well, the World Health Organization, so that's their theme this year, which is Right to Health, basically means that it affects everyone. So it means that universally everyone should have access to health and um, testing. But for positive women, it means that all women should have an equal right as much as other populations to be beneficiaries of the HIV response in Australia. Mm. So what are the main HIV treatment issues specific to women? Um, Side effects, for instance. Yeah. So, I mean, really, it's it's a lack of knowledge around HIV and it's a lack of knowledge around that treatment and different symptoms. So, you know, almost 50% of women living with HIV are estimated to be living below the poverty line. So accessing different kinds of treatment and support can be a real issue and also that women are completely like underrepresented in international clinical trials and also in published published HIV literature so you know um women are very much a silent group within the HIV community it's really interesting because I worked in the HIV field in the 90s and people yeah. were saying exactly the same things in relation to positive women 25 yeah. years ago yeah yeah that's right and you know, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that women's journeys through HIV are really complex and they're really unique. And it's about taking the time to understand the difference between women's journeys and other populations. Natalie, what are the links between peer support and effective health promotion for people living with HIV? Yeah, so I mean, with with Positive Women, our key method of health promotion is through our peer support workers. So when women are diagnosed, they'll be um, referred to our peer support workers. And basically, it's it's a really important connection for, for women to make because the peer support needs for women are unique and they're very different um, to those of men. Because many women report that they feel unsafe or uncomfortable disclosing their status. So at Positive Women Victoria, we use a less traditional approach of advocacy and we don't operate upon the terms that disclosure is a necessary step in self-acceptance. So, you know, whether you disclose or not does not mean that you have come to your, you know, self-realisation. How much is stigma from healthcare providers towards people with living HIV, living with HIV a problem? Stigma just in general is a huge issue and that was, you know, a major focus of the talks that I was present at at the Doherty Institute today. But from healthcare providers, I think that, you know, it's about the complexity and the u- uniqueness of each woman that's living with HIV. 40 40- of women diagnosed with HIV in the last 10 years were born in high prevalence areas such as sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. And these women, for example, the needs of them are unique because they intersect with 
you know, complex cultural, religious and gender belief systems that aren't always suited to the way we deliver healthcare and communicate health messages in Australia. And, you know, it's actually shocking that 74% of women have reported discrimination and unwanted disclosure in social and medical settings. So stigma in healthcare providers is it's real and it, yeah, it's very much present. What do you think needs to happen to reduce stigma around HIV and AIDS? Because you'd think healthcare providers would be particularly concerned about confidentiality, but obviously mm. that's not an issue oh, for wow. some of them. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think the main thing that needs to happen is that women get HIV. They need to be, um, if they're having a sexual health test, they need to be offered an HIV test. And they also need to be included in as a priority population in their own right in the seventh national HIV strategy. Because then, you know, this affects their recognition. It affects whether they're recognised in research and then that follows on to understanding and acceptance and, and normalising that it's, it doesn't just affect other populations. Women are very much present in the HIV community. You mentioned new diagnoses before and how 46% of women are from sub-Saharan Africa. I'm assuming that's women diagnosed in Australia, yeah? Or yeah, is that yeah, quite in the last yeah. 10 years. Yeah. In terms of that other 54%, in terms of new diagnoses, which other female communities are particularly represented? I think that it's really, it's mainly from the heterosexual cis community, but there are mm. transgender women that are diagnosed as well. Mm. Obviously, the prevalence for contracting HIV for women is higher in heterosexual mm. sex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then how do we teach women to protect themselves from HIV and AIDS? I think it's about talking about it. It's about encouraging women to get tested. It's encouraging them to request to be tested during sexual health tests and, and about knowing their risk and raising awareness. But it's also about an increase of recognition and funding and inclusion in clinical trials. It sounds that empowerment is very much a focus of positive women, Victoria, and and their focus. And it seems to be a word that cuts across a lot of themes in relation to effective advocacy, but also healthcare provision as well for women. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely right. I mean... We have a really, we've got a non-traditional, as I said before, we've got a non-traditional uh, way of providing advocacy. Um, but, you know, we're not really in the business of providing advice to women. Mm. Rather, you know, we strive to understand women's specific support needs and we work with those needs in whatever the capacity is that women need. It's fascinating that there's this kind of, you know, ethos that's developed in the HIV field that, you know, in order to kind of, you know, demonstrate one's self-acceptance of having the virus, you have to engage in disclosure. But as you've pointed out, there's all kinds of impracticalities in relation to that ethos, isn't there? It seems an extraordinary kind of mentality. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, whilst it's it's really important to recognise the strength in different people's disclosure and, and that's something that is celebrated and and commemorated it's also just the same in accepting and understanding why someone might not disclose their status 
for many women, you know, who report that they, they feel unsafe or they feel uncomfortable, that's really, really serious. Mm. And it's not about disclosing. It's about living your best life. And, of course, once you tell somebody, you can't actually untell them either. You can't mm. just press a button and delete and it's all gone. So exactly. the consequences exactly. are pretty huge. Yeah, and it leads to so much, you know, just those, those sorts of disclosure, you know, how, who, when, what about my children, what about mm. giving birth, um, do I tell my partners, will I ever have sex again, you know, those kinds of things. They're, they're not to be taken lightly. They're, they're important questions that women are asking themselves and, and the answers that they come up for themselves are completely valid, whatever they are. Natalie, is there a particular message when it comes to spreading awareness that you think is often missing from the conversation? Yes, yes. I mean, I feel like from our point of view at Positive Women, it seems obvious, but it's, it's that women get HIV too and that the experience of women living with HIV is very different from other populations. And it's crucial that women are viewed through this lens and not any other. Natalie, it's been so good to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Keep up the great work at Positive Women Victoria. And if I can say it, happy World AIDS Day. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Happy World AIDS Day, everybody. Yeah, thanks, Natalie. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Yes, and we are now joined by JC Burke, a former nurse who worked in HIV wards in the 80s and 90s. And she's the author of... The Things We Promise, a story of HIV in the 1980s. Welcome, JC. Hi, JC. Thank you. Hi. So your first career was in nursing and at a time when the AIDS epidemic had hit. So what year is it that you began working in an HIV ward and how much was known about AIDS at the time? I actually worked in oncology wards, which meant that, yeah, but you saw a lot of HIV patients because it wasn't unusual for people to present with lymphoma and and other types of cancers. Also, there were a lot of haemophiliacs as well. So I I started working in about 1984, and I think about perhaps 1985 is my first memory, really strong memory of this fear of this thing that they called AIDS. And, of course, many of the cancers that you would have seen would have been AIDS-defining illnesses. Of course, around that time as well, it was known as GRID, gay-related infectious disease. There must have been an incredible amount of of stigma and fear within the gay community then. Oh, it was huge because it was okay to have cancer cancer, but if you Mm. had AIDS-related cancer, it was like there was this label on you. I must say in Australia, I think we probably dealt with it a lot better because we kind of focused more on the the medical side rather than the hysteria that was going on, um, you know, in in America especially. Not that we were fabulous, but I think it was probably um, an improvement. But there was this incredible stigma. And I remember um, people that wouldn't take meals into rooms, relatives that wouldn't visit it was, uh, it, it's such a dark memory to look back on. Mm. So it was a difficult to find nursing staff to work with, with AIDS patients? No, no, I don't think it was. No, I think that, that um, that's the thing about nursing. I mean, you, you nurse, it's impartial and you, you, love, you, you love your job. It, it, it's what you do. So I don't think there was difficulty in finding staff. I think more with lack of education, it was possibly the cleaning staff, you know, the food staff, people that 
really didn't understand that, you know, you couldn't catch it from going into a room. I mean, these were the days where people thought you could catch it from a mosquito bite. Right. And there wasn't really much known about the link between oh, HIV and AIDS as well. Exactly, so it was assumed exactly. that if someone was HIV positive, they automatically had AIDS, which of course exactly, isn't the case. yeah, there, there was very little definition and people understanding that they were two totally different things. And and so, as we all know, with lack of knowledge comes stigma, hysteria, vilification, all that sort of thing. Mm. What do you think HIV stigma looks like today compared to uh, thirty years ago or more? Well, I think it's. I think it's really, really improved. I mean, I know people talk about complacency. I guess one of the things I find, and this is just being kind of brutally honest, um, as a writer who's written this book, that really the story that I was really, really wanted to tell is that I don't know if there's a lot of interest in the youth to um, find out about that time. I don't know whether people are really hungry for that knowledge of, of that history. I don't know why, um, but I wouldn't say that... I, I think it's a very different type of world now in terms of HIV. Thank goodness. I mean, there was a lot of research that was done, a lot of funding, which has really helped the general research into cancer, you know, as, as much as anything, let alone into um, HIV AIDS. So give us a brief yeah, summary of the book. plot of your book, The Things We Promise, and great title too, by the way. Yeah, it's great. Oh, God, thanks. It's quite hard, the title. The Things We Promise is told to the voice of Gemma, a 16-year-old girl who goes to the local high school. You know, life's just, you know, your mates, all that kind of thing. And she has a brother, Billy, who is really becoming quite a famous hair and makeup artist in New York. And um, he has promised to come home at the end of the year to do her hair and makeup for her first formal, which is year 11. And it ends up that he comes home earlier and completely unexpected. He's HIV positive and his partner, Saul, a New Yorker, has uh, just died of AIDS. And it's about the secrets that we keep, the, that world of the young adult that we tend to shut, you know, we tend to shut them out. It's about how a young girl dealt with this in 1990 with the, the stigma, the hysteria, the, the judgment. It's about the unlikely support that comes from people that maybe you don't expect and and very often the lack of support from people that you kind of think that you can count on. I think that's one of the strange things about, you know, disease or, or those struggles that you have that you can't always count on the people that you were so sure that, that you yeah. could. And it talks about, it goes into, you know, the fear-mongering, the prejudice, the stigma. And I guess this girl just has to try and find find her way through and of course she's terrified for her brother who ends up spending um a lot of time in hospital and so she does and and she becomes very close to to lots of the patients in the AIDS ward. When did you begin writing the story JC? I started writing it I think probably about the end of 2014 and I, I just my my kids are in their 20s and to be honest I was just sort of pissed off that they didn't know anything <laughs> about the time and because for me, it's really raw. Like it's like I said, when, when, when I write, it's about something that I really want to know about. I want to try and understand how this happened, why it happened, why people were, were cruel. You know, I just I wanted to sort of go into that layer of the human condition, you know, for my own my own interest, I suppose. And the fact that that they didn't know about it and that I don't feel like there's a real hunger to know about it is what really drove me to 
to want to put down this very bleak, bleak time in history. It and, must have and been quite... And, and it's a tough book. It, yeah, it must have been quite an emotional journey to actually write that. And it's amazing you got mm-hmm. it done so fast, considering just how emotive it must have been, especially in relation to your own personal experiences as someone yes. on the front line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it was. And there was one particular character who um, is a guy from the country. And I actually, I do lots of um, travelling at, at rural schools. And, and I would talk to the staff in the staff room and they would tell me, some of the saddest stories I had ever heard mm. about sons, brothers, cousins, you know, being rejected, dying alone. And this was this story that kept coming up. So I wanted to tell this story in the book. And that particular character, the character of Zane, that was that was really tough. That was that was a tough story to tell. Mm. And he died. But that's the truth. That was the truth of the matter. And so although it's difficult to read those things, I think it's important that it's told in the way that it really happened. There's no point not being authentic. You know, you can't gloss over history. You don't want to make it... I don't want this to be a comfortable read. I want this to be a confronting Mm. read. Were there any particular patients that that stick in your mind that you'd worked with? Yes. Yes, there is. There's one patient, and I think it was... It must have been in the the mid 86, 1986 or something, I don't exactly remember. It was still very, very new. And uh, because the Grim Reaper ad didn't come out until 1987, I think it might have been before Mm. that time. Um, The patient was in the middle of, you know, what they called in those days gender reassignment and was, I don't know what step of the operation they were were in because they were um, on our ward because we had single rooms. And he had gone from the stage of HIV to full-blown AIDS. And the doctor, the surgeons wouldn't take him into theatre for fear of, you know, contaminating the theatre. There was all that, all that fear, all that unknown stuff. But I just remember this night, Judy, and um, I was crazy busy running around and I remember the patient just cried all night. Mm. And um, it was... It was very, very, very sad, you know, and I felt very, very powerless. And I couldn't imagine what this felt like being trapped between your gender, life and death, you know. Oh, I just couldn't imagine what was going through that patient's head. It was it was a very, very sad night. And I'll, I'll never forget the sound of them crying. Do you think uh, most of the patients you treated were, were treated fairly? I saw, I didn't see anyone being treated unfairly. I do think, I worked in big city hospitals, so I guess I couldn't comment. I'd hate to say that it was across the board in, in rural hospitals, community hospitals, etc. Where I was, I was always, I always met really dedicated staff, you know, nurses who were perhaps nursing their own loved ones of this, of this disease as well. Um, I mean, that was the scary thing is, is that uh, you were there with these people looking after them, but, but very often their partner was there at the bedside nursing their, the, per, the closest person to them, but kind of looking in the crystal ball for what could be their future as well. And, and I saw really, I did see the nursing staff, I found very, very uh, de- dedicated and, and caring. JC Burke, thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for speaking with us. See ya. Bye.
You're listening to 3CR Radio. We do have a guest on the line. It's uh, Geraldine Fowler. Geraldine is from No Pride in Detention and the Refugee Action Collective. And of course, all the remaining refugees on Manus have been moved to a PNG run facility. Hi, Geraldine. Hi. Hi. So, what are conditions like for the Manus asylum seekers at the PNG facility? I think it's quite clear from what we're hearing from people like Beirut Buchani, the Kurdish Iranian journalist who's on Manus at the moment in detention, that really the, the conditions in these new facilities are in many cases worse than what they came from and they're certainly not adequate by any reasonable standard for, for human habitation. It's quite clear that the facilities are in many cases haven't even been finished building they're not they're not even complete people go for hours every day there's no water there's no electricity Mm. and there's not really adequate housing either so some people are are, you know we've heard reports of of up to 60 men actually left without accommodation at all so they're not they're not adequate at all yeah so what what's the latest report on what will happen with these 60 men where are they Um, currently placed well the my understanding is that people are basically squeezed into rooms so there'll be a you know a room with two beds in it but you've got three or four men in in that in those bed in those bedrooms so I think um at the moment people are, are just kind of trying to make do but it's very much a situation where there, there is not enough accommodation for the number of people in there. Geraldine how are Papua New Guinea authorities managing the safety concerns of the refugees? Well I mean it's a difficult question isn't it because really these refugees are Australia's responsibility mm. so I think you know, at every point, the Australian government has tried to kind of pass the buck to the Papua New Guinea authorities. And, you know, on Manus Island, it's a very impoverished place with a real lack of resources. So things are extremely tight. And I think the reality is, is that the safety of these refugees is not being managed adequately. I mean, we've had, you know, countless reports of refugees being beaten and mutilated uh, on on the island, we've you know people are extremely fearful when the the Manus siege was going on. There are actually some of the men who had moved to the new accommodation came back to the original facility because the new accommodation was so unsafe for them that they would actually prefer to be in the camp uh, under siege from the Australian government than face the unsafe conditions. So I think it's quite clear that the safety of the refugees is not being protected at all. Mm. What kind of access and assessment by doctors is there for the men being detained? 40 minutes ago, Medicines on Frontier left Manus. So the, there's obviously a, a massive lack of med- medical facilities on the island and Medicines on Frontier had actually stepped in to try and do something about the situation, which, you know, just reflect you on that, it's, it's insane. Like these, mm. these men are Australia's responsibility. We've created such a humanitarian crisis that Medicines on Frontier have to step in and do something about it. So they've just had to leave Manus and there are a number of people still in need of medical treatment. There's no kind of real adequate psychological facilities in the, in, in the facility and people are kind of having trouble accessing things like medication for mental illness. Of course, you know, the, the Manus Island Detention Centre is a factory for mental illness. So Yeah, um, I would you, think that yeah. would be paramount mental health issues. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Beirut Bachani just tweeted, the Australian government has created reliance on medication um, and now they're not providing it, which 
sums it up pretty well. Geraldine, you mentioned the need for the Australian government to take responsibility. Clearly, that's not on their agenda. They've Mm. dumped the men in PNG. What activities can we expect from No Pride in Detention to ensure this Manus crisis does not slip from the public's consciousness? Well, you know, I think that No Pride in Detention group has, you know, very early, uh, you know, in early stages of its kind of development and we are planning in January a, um, a float in the Midsummer Pride March to draw attention to the issue and a no pride and detention float. I think as well participating in the Refugee Action Collective organised events, which there are a number of which, which are coming up. So we've got a big rally on Human Rights Day um, on the 10th of December at the State Library, which we hope we see you know thousands of people out there demanding that the Australian government brings them here. And I think the reality is that, you know, they might, you know, Dutton and Turnbull don't want to admit it, but there is only one option. And the option is to evacuate Manus now and bring those men here. That is the only, that's the only solution to this, you know, terrible humanitarian crisis. And I really think that if we can build a strong campaign and a strong movement, you know, keep getting out on the streets, but also organising our workplaces, putting up posters in our neighbourhoods, you know, getting our family and friends, our workmates along to these rallies, you know, that's how we can really um, solve this crisis and, and bring, bring them here. There are international demonstrations happening as well, right? There was uh, one in Berlin the other day. We're getting, a pretty, yeah. we're getting a pretty bad rep around the world. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the Australian embassy in New Zealand was blockaded by protests the other day. Like, yeah, people, and unfortunately... We're getting a bad rep from the progressive side of politics around the world, but mm. on the conservative side of politics, people are looking to what Turnbull and Dutton are doing to refugees here, and they're trying to replicate it in Europe. Um, mm. So I think we have a responsibility to stop this now before this toxic approach spreads the, to the rest of the world. It does seem toxic, and almost it's almost as if the Australian government has a scorched earth policy in relation mm. to the refugees on Manus. They clearly... Yeah poured cold water all on New Zealand's offer to take 150 yeah. refugees. Mm. What's Refugee Action Collective's response and No Prime Detention's response to this scorched earth toxic policy, particularly in relation to New Zealand? I think the most important thing to focus on is that these third country resettlement options, like they're not an immediate solution to this crisis. Mm. Like this, it needs to be solved, you know, next week. It needs to be solved, like, tomorrow. Like, mm, it's, it's, it's so, an immediate crisis. so bad. We need to evacuate Manus and Nauru right now and bring those people to Australia. So I think that has to be and is, like, the first and foremost demand that we make is bring them here. Like, they need to come to Australia. Now, in terms of where those refugees want to go after they come to Australia, like, if they want to go to New Zealand, if they want to go to the US, like, absolutely, of course, they should be able to do that. But I think as they need... We, Australia needs to take responsibility. They are our responsibility. They have asked us for shelter and for safety and security. We have so much, so much that we can share with them. It's our responsibility to give them that, to give them the option for, for resettlement in Australia. Mm. Well, how are some of the ways that we can maintain pressure on the government? I would encourage everyone to, to get involved in the Refugee Action Committee. They, we, we meet every week. We are a democratic organising collective that do things like calling the rallies, you know, putting up posters, doing stalls, all those kinds of things. 
um, to, to raise the profile of the issue. So I think that's, you know, the, the first step. But I think as well it's really important that we deepen the roots of this action into our community and, and spread it really wide. I think, you know, people would have, you know, re- remember it's only very recently during the postal survey on marriage equality, like every shop, every house window, every picket fence had a rainbow flag on it. Mm. And I think now, you know, we need every shop, every picket fence, every house window to have a, you know, bring them here sign or a pro refugee message. Mm. Like we need to really broaden this movement. You know, if you're a, a worker and you're in a union, put a motion, you know, to, to your union, through your union about, you know, supporting refugee rights. Talk to your workmates about it. Put up a poster in your tea room. You know, get a contingent along to the rally. Like they, these are the things that can really, um, yeah, de- deepen the roots of the movement. Get more and more people involved to to really, you know, yeah, demand that that we bring them here. We need to be getting out on the streets, and we need to be, you know, getting more and more people, yeah, involved in doing things, whether it's postering, whether it's you know, putting up posters in in your neighbourhood or whatever, you know, organise your contingent to the rally. I think those things sometimes can have a little bit more of an impact, which is not to diminish, you know, the importance of taking those first steps like calling your local member or Shorten or Turnbull. Geraldine, thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR. Much appreciated. Oh, no, thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.